Good morning, beautiful people. Uh, I love it, Fran, that you chose that litany because I think it dovetails with the sermon really well, which is titled From Personal Piety to System Engagement. And Aurelia pointed out that sounds awfully boring (laughs) (laughs) and really nerdy, but um, stick with me. Stick with me. So I'm sure you've heard this bit from the late David Foster Wallace, but I I think about this often, very often. He tells a joke. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, What the hell is water? We are in a series called A Collection of Epiphanies. And really all this means is that Fran Aurelia and I are sharing topical sermons based on what we think is helpful for our community and what might pull the curtain back a little bit so you can see some of the underlying principles that guide a lot of what we do around here. For my sermon this morning, I want to talk about why the sermons that you often hear from me in particular are not focused on personal piety so much and individual salvation, but they're often focused on seeing and engaging the systems in which we participate, seeing and engaging the water that we swim in. It matters. Seeing the systems matter. We so often focus on the content of what's happening, and we miss the dynamics that are going on all around us. Until we have awareness of it and some vocabulary for it and a guide for how to navigate it, we will just mindlessly uphold it and swim in it unknowingly. Social justice movements throughout history have called this consciousness raising, and they rightly point out that this is an essential first step for bringing about broad systemic change. We've got to be able to see the systems around us and that we're participating in to engage them. I have a friend who is a middle school teacher in San Antonio, and he often shares with me how his school is way under-resourced. He's on in, in a particular part of town, and how the teachers are constantly being asked to do more and more, work longer hours, work weekends, uh, but they're getting less and less support uh, from administration and otherwise. And he would often share about how he would always do it because it's for the kids. It's for the kids. It's for the kids. So a couple of months ago, I said to him, hey, Justin, I'm truly, I'm inspired by how much you sacrifice for these kids. But I can't help but wonder if your extraordinary efforts are not in a way perpetuating and holding up this system that you keep telling me about that is kind of exploiting you and taking advantage of you. I can't help but wonder if you're not helping perpetuate that. And I could tell I wasn't making sense to him. So I tried again. I said, um, any system, any system that asks you to regularly be a martyr, any system that can't function unless you go to extraordinary lengths and heroic lengths might be a system that needs to change. He said he hadn't thought about it that way before, but he would give it some thought. And I thought, oh, Okay. We'll see. I don't know. 
We talked a little bit more about systems and how every system finds a homeostasis or an equilibrium, even if it's an unhealthy, unfair, unbalanced equilibrium. It finds some kind of balance. I thought it was a good talk. Fast forward to a couple of weeks ago when I was back on duty in San Antonio with the Air Force. He's in the Air Force as well. And he said, hey, I've been thinking about what you said to me about how I'm helping hold up an ungodly and oppressive system at my school, and I wanted to let you know that I went ahead and resigned from my job. <laughs> I said, just, whoa, 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 man. Hold on, the kids, hold on, hold on. I am not, this happened, hold on. He saw the system for what it was. Some would say it's broken. Some would say it's not broken. It's functioning exactly like it was intended. I said, man, I wasn't telling you to quit your job. I just wanted you to think about the system and how it might be taking advantage of your kindness and how you might engage it with more intentionality instead of just being exploited without you realizing it and then framing it in these heroic terms, which, again, I applaud everything you do for the kids, but I just wanted you to be aware of the system itself. And he said, I okay, okay, I know, you're right, but I made an intentional decision to move to a different position within the school district that is better resources resourced and where I feel like I won't be exploited anymore. And I respect that. He was seeing the water. He was seeing the system. He was engaging it with intentionality now. So we all participate in systems, and our faith compels us. I would say it makes it our responsibility to engage the systems that we participate in critically and with the intent of shaping them into becoming life-giving institutions. Eric read from Colossians 1 earlier, a few minutes ago for us, in which it says, all things, or in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So as people of faith, whenever we encounter any system, a social system, political, economic, corporate, private, public, interpersonal, national, any system, your work, your relationships, your marriage, our prison system, our economic and monetary systems, all of these and many others, we should think of Colossians 1. We should think of this verse that Eric read and ask, is this system functioning in a way that shows it was created through Jesus and for Jesus? Which is to say, does this system promote the peace of Christ on earth and the wholeness of all of creation? Or does it exploit you? Or does it hold some down so that others can be lifted up? If so, it needs to be engaged subverted, opposed, and changed. Let me offer three quick points about living our faith by focusing on changing systems. First, Jesus stands in a long line of prophets in the biblical tradition who point out that personal piety cannot be substituted for social structures that embody God's justice. We can't, on all that system stuff, I'm just going to be a holy person who does my quiet time and prays, and the rest of that doesn't matter. In the Bible, the prophet's role was not to foretell the future, but instead to speak and embody truth that others avoided or couldn't see. The prophet's goal was often to raise awareness of systemic issues and bring about systemic change for the wholeness, for the shalom of God's people. 
They would often bring attention to how the community had turned away from God as evidenced by the way that they treat the vulnerable and how their systems were replete with injustice, inequality, and inequity. When Jesus criticized the religious systems because its leaders, for example, gave a tenth of their spices but ignored the more important causes like justice and love, he stood in the way of the prophet Isaiah. He said to his nation, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And if you don't, then all your religious observances and personal piety mean absolutely nothing. When Jesus belittles religious leaders, calling them a bunch of snakes and children of Satan, religious leaders now listening take note, he stands in the way of the great social justice prophet Amos, who said, there's no justice in your courts, you tax the life out of the poor, your powerful accept bribes, your rich live in houses while everyone else lives in slums. And until this changes, I hate your religious observances. Your offerings disgust me. And as if you thought you could buy me off and have me turn a blind eye to all the ways that you make a mockery of my laws. Here's what I want. Baptize every part of your society in justice. Let righteousness be an unstoppable river in which everyone can be washed and nourished. Until then, don't even say my name. Personal piety cannot be substituted for social structures that embody God's justice. My second point is that Jesus himself talked about systems all the time. Jesus often spoke about the kingdom or the kingdom of God. You probably notice that around here we say kingdom rather than kingdom because Jesus doesn't portray God's way as that of a patriarchal monarchy as much as he portrays God's way as that of an ever-growing community of kin relations in which God is the gracious fatherly mother and fierce motherly father. So we talk about God's kingdom rather than God's kingdom. Plus, we do not need more top-down authoritarian models of rule in this world. God save us from that. We need more I am my brother and sister's keeper models. We need more common humanity models of leadership. This is, for example, implicit in the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples. We sang it today. I didn't. just worked out. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father, or our parent in heaven, your name is holy. May your kingdom come in the here and now. May your will be done on earth like it's done in heaven. Give us, not just me, today our daily bread and forgive us, not just me, our sins and trespasses as we forgive those who sin and trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil because you show us what true power is. In this I hear Jesus saying, God, you know that we all need food. We all need forgiveness. We all need deliverance from narcissistic, nationalistic, small-minded, neighbor-exploiting ways. May earth be the kind of place where those needs don't lead us to consume and destroy one another. Help us to make earth look like heaven, is what Jesus is teaching us to pray. In the early 1900s, there were some Christian clergy who took this prayer incredibly seriously. They didn't just say it 
wrote, um, they wanted to close the gap between their religious values and the suffering that was around them. They couldn't hold their noses and pray any longer. They began to apply biblical ethics to economic policies and economic inequality, the causes of poverty, the causes of crime, racial tensions, the conditions of the slums around them, the pollution of the environment, child labor, public education, all these things. They said our faith applies to all of this stuff. Their movement became known as the social gospel movement. Their big idea was that our faith ought to have social justice implications and not just personal piety implications. One of the leaders was Reverend Walter Rauschenbusch, a minister in the gritty and impoverished Hell's Kitchen area of New York. I, she's not here today, but a couple of weeks ago I saw Peyton wear a shirt this morning, so solid. I included a quote from him in your guide, in fact, at the front of your guide, in which he said, whoever uncouples the religious and the social life has not understood Jesus. Whoever sets any bounds for the reconstructive power of the religious life over the social relations and institutions of humanity, to that extent, denies the faith of Jesus. Holy smokes. He's saying, whatever we're doing, we're not practicing the faith of Jesus if we, unco if we uncouple the personal and the political. The social gospel ministers were opposed by other ministers, other Christian ministers who thought that the role of the church, it's just to save souls, to be holy, and to wait for Jesus to return so we can go to heaven with him. They would say things to the social gospel leaders like, what do labor laws have to do with saving souls? And you've got it all wrong. You've got it backwards. The poor are poor because of their habits. If we get their souls saved first, be workers, and then they'll be successful, and then they're not poor anymore. We hear these same arguments today, but think about it from a systems perspective for a moment. Which side in the big economic system that they lived in, which side do you think was favored by the powerful, elite, lever-pulling, top-down domination system people? Yeah, probably the ones who want everybody to just become a hard worker and bootstrap their way out of poverty. We don't need to focus on the systems. We just need you individuals to stop being losers, start working harder. Of course, we see the same thing today when athletes are told to just shut up and play rather than protest white supremacy. We see the same thing today with the militarization of our police or the prison industrial complex. Maybe you experience the same thing when you're told to just shut up and just do the minimum needed to treat patients or shut up and just send out the eviction notice or shut up and code or shut up and just arrest that guy. To be honest, for a so-called Christian nation like we are, we are incredibly Darwinian. Actually, I dare say, a move to Darwinism would be a step in the right direction for us because a Darwinian system simply allocates resources based on who has competitive edges and who uses resources most effectively. That doesn't describe a lot of the systems in this society. Instead, we allocate resources based not on utility and who can do the most with the least, but instead based on silly things like status or skin color or who you know 
or who already has or who got there first or who's willing to turn a blind eye to the environment to accomplish a task or create a product. So I never thought I would say this, but I kind of wish we were a more Darwinian society because a lot of the systems we have aren't even cold Darwinism. Disproportional imprisonment of men of color. That's not Darwinism. Females paying a vagina tax on their incomes because they're women isn't cold Darwinian capitalism. Yes, I just said that. <laughs> That's the second time in this service you got to hear the word vagina. Aurelia and I did not. We did not plan that. You're welcome. Black mothers dying during childbirth at twice the rate of white mothers is not Darwinian. These are structural issues, and I struggle to know what to call these systems other than demonic. I have to use theological language to describe something so egregious. It is demonic. They simply rob people of the ability to live. They simply rob people of just rewards for their effort. They simply rob people of God's common grace found in prenatal care. These are some of the systems in our society that need to be confronted and opposed. My third and final point is that if we don't use the Christian faith to oppose domination systems wherever we find them, then the Christian faith will be used to uphold the domination systems of this world. If we aren't using our faith to tear down these demonic structures, people are more than happy to use our faith to uphold these demonic structures. Pick any point in history since Christianity became the preferred religion of the empire, beginning with Constantine, and you will find plenty of examples to support this. In our own society, think of the genocide of Native Americans, the enslavement of Africans, discrimination against those in same-sex relationships, stigmatization of poverty, the subjugation of women. All these systems have been undergirded by Christianity because if the Christian faith won't be used to transform the social, the political, the legal, the economic systems, then it will be used to support them and prop them up. Like in the case of George Stinney. Let me read you a little passage from this book, Just Mercy. I haven't seen the movie. I, I don't know if it's still in theaters. I've read the book. He writes, uh, he was a lawyer, did a lot of work in the South in the 80s, 90s, and still is working. In another signature case of juvenile prosecution, George Stinney, a 14-year-old black boy, was executed by the state of South Carolina on June 16th. 1944. Three months earlier, two young white girls who lived nearby had gone out to pick flowers and they never returned home. Scores of people across the community went searching for the missing girls. Young George and his siblings joined the search party. At some point, George mentioned to one of the white adult searchers that he and his sister had seen the girls earlier in the day. The girls had approached them while they were playing outside and asked, where can we find some flowers to pick? The next day, the dead bodies of the girls were found in a shallow ditch. George was immediately arrested for the murders because he had admitted to seeing the girls before they disappeared, and he was the last person to see them alive. He was subjected to hours of interrogation without his parents or an attorney present. The sheriff interrogating him 
claimed that George had confessed to the murders, though no written or signed statement was ever presented. A month later, a trial was convened. Facing charges of first-degree murder, George sat alone in front of an estimated crowd of 1,500 white people who had packed the courtroom and surrounded the building. No African-Americans were allowed inside the courthouse. George's white court-appointed attorney, a tax lawyer with political aspirations, called no witnesses. The prosecution's only evidence was testimony regarding George's alleged confession. The trial was over in a few hours. An all-white jury deliberated for 10 minutes before convicting George of rape and murder. The judge promptly sentenced George to death. George's lawyer said there would be no appeal because the family didn't have any money to pay for it. Despite appeals from the NAACP and black clergy who asked that the sentence be converted to life imprisonment, the governor uh, refused to intervene, and George was sent to Columbia to be executed in South Carolina's electric chair. Small for even his age, the five-foot-two, 90-pound George walked up to the chair with a Bible in his hand. He had to sit on the Bible when the prison staff couldn't fit the electrodes to his small frame. Alone in the room, with no family or any people of color present, the terrified child sat in the oversized electric chair. He frantically searched the room for someone to help him, but he only saw law enforcement personnel and reporters. The adult-sized mask slid off his face when the first jolt of electricity struck his body. Witnesses to the execution could see his wide open, tearful eyes and saliva dripping from his mouth. 81 days after being approached by two young girls about where to pick some flowers, George was pronounced dead. Years later, rumors surfaced that a white man from a prominent family confessed on his deathbed to killing the girls. And recently, there have been efforts to exonerate George. What is water? Well, it's this. It's this. And if we're solely focused on personal piety and personal holiness, it's this. It's a demonic system maintained by many church-going people, people of faith who will give quiet, pious approval and even use or offer the use of one of their artifacts to help uphold the domination system. Look, if this is what Christianity is about, I'm done. I'm out. I am just not interested in such a small, anemic faith. But it doesn't have to be. May we always be a community of people willing to see and engage and challenge and subvert and redeem these systems. In other words, may we always be the people of Jesus. Amen.